Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdett, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, August 12th. On today's episode of the Roundup, we're going to talk about something that I have admitted many times that I don't know much about or follow that closely, and that's the pharmaceutical industry. I think once you start covering big pharma as a reporter, it becomes all-consuming and you don't have much time to learn about or write about anything else. It's that complicated. But I did hear that there were some big drug provisions in the new Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, sarcasm intended, and that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. Boldly going where this journalist fears to write about are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Murchison, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave? Well, it's our 38th wedding anniversary this week, and it seems just like yesterday we got married. But of course, it was in the first term of the Reagan administration. Uh, So we're going to go to Michigan for a few days and celebrate. I'm feeling pretty good. Wow. Congratulations. That's great. We're going to hit 39 years this year. Whoa. I don't know what we're going to do, but we need to start planning something. Thanks, Dave. You know what, Dave? The fashions are coming back. Your (laughs) wedding pictures will look contemporary here anytime soon. Oh, God. (laughs) Great. I wasn't expecting that. All right. (laughs) Julie, how are you? I'm doing great. I am in the last 48 hours before we leave on a 10-day vacation. So everyone in in my family is running around like a mad person at my direction. That's great. You got the suitcases out, right? You bet. All right. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, before we talk about the healthcare provisions in the new Inflation Reduction Act, I wanted to ask you about your prescription drug costs. Uh, Dave, what's the highest copay you've ever paid for a prescription outpatient drug? Well, I'm not on any prescription drugs, thank goodness, but we do have a high deductible plan from the University of Chicago where Terry works. And she takes a drug once a month that typically has a $15 copay. But since we're on the high deductible plan, each January until we hit that deductible, that drug costs several hundred dollars. None of it makes any sense, right? Interesting. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Thanks, Dave. Julie, I know you've mentioned a $400 plus copay for a prescription drug for a family member. Is that the highest so far or is there another big receipt hanging on your cubicle wall? That is the highest so far, but I will say I spent part of my evening this week fighting with Walgreens about this very drug, and I had someone in front of me in line who was talking to presumably a family member or a friend about their drug, saying they can't get the insurance to cover, but they're on their last pill and they just have to pay for it. So the guy paid 150 bucks at the window. So you know, watching this happen in real time for people is it's tough. Wow, that's a great anecdote. Thank you. Uh, most of the co-pays for my maintenance drugs are in the $15 to $30 range, so I'm good there. But the craziness of drug co-pays really hits me when I pick up a prescription for my 84-year-old mother. She doesn't drive anymore, so me and my sister are the pharmacy home delivery service. The copay for a prescription that I picked up for her last week was $2.15. I mean, $2.15. Why bother? Why bother? 
It costs more to process the credit card payment or in gas for me to drive to her pharmacy for my house and then over to her house. So somebody is paying and somebody is making money off this deal somehow. So again, it speaks to the craziness of all this. Uh, and I guess that's a good segue into our topic today. And that's what's in the Inflation Reduction Act as far as healthcare is concerned. Let me run down a few of the major provisions. The new law would let Medicare for the first time negotiate the prices for outpatient prescription drugs with drug companies, penalize drug companies for raising the prices of those negotiated drugs faster than the rate of inflation. It would cap Medicare beneficiaries' Part D out-of-pocket drug spending at $2,000 a year, and it would make all vaccines free for all Medicare beneficiaries. Dave, how do you think this changes the market dynamics for prescription drugs? Do you think we'll all end up paying more to make up for the revenue drug companies lose to Medicare? Or will private payers demand the same prices and we all win? Well, let me make a few big picture comments before tackling your three questions, which actually all have to do with market dynamics in one form or another. First, the legislation is a big deal. It breaks the firewall between Big Pharma and Medicare that's protected Big Pharma's rent-seeking behaviors for decades. It must be a big deal given how much Big Pharma lobbied against the proposal, including a seven-figure campaign in the last couple of months that ultimately failed. Less covered has been the repeal of the Trump-era rule that eliminated safe harbor rebates kickbacks to pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. That's a big win for insurers and another blow to big pharma. So, you know, the gods are wrestling up in the heavens, or at least in Washington, D.C. Another big picture comment, there are basically two ways to control prices through competition and regulation. We clearly have a failed market in drug discovery, manufacturing, and sales, and a need for more aggressive regulation. This proposal is very heavy on the regulatory front, and heavy regulation is a blunt instrument which often has unforeseen consequences that screw up market supply-demand dynamics. Screw up, that's a technical term. An example of that would be concern from generic drug manufacturers that the negotiation process for the few drugs that are gonna come in under this new agreement will weaken the market for their products. My own preference is for competitive solutions like Civica RX and Mark Cuban's drug company that are offering lower priced alternatives to high priced generic drugs whose manufacturers have cornered the market and use their leverage to keep prices artificially high. But to your questions on market dynamics, It's important to realize this only applies to Medicare, not commercially insured beneficiaries who are the primary purchasers of drugs. So it's it's just Medicare. It's a huge win for seniors on fixed incomes who have expensive co-pays for vital drugs and are often rationing them now. And that number is about 3 million people. So nothing trivial there at all. It's going to make their lives better. The caps on copay and premium increases feel like price controls to me. They may be necessary if there aren't market-based mechanisms to control prices, but they're dangerous. It's really easy to get too many tin cups and not enough tin cans. What the pharma market really needs, though, and this gets to the competition versus regulation question, are better buyers for drugs. The extent to which this legislation triggers more effective price negotiations between 
payers and insurance companies, self-insured companies, and drug manufacturers, PBMs, for more effective price negotiations remains a big unknown. And we obviously shouldn't take our eyes off big pharma. They've got years to figure out how to manipulate these rules to their benefit like they've done with patent protections. So this is the beginning of the reform process. In fact, it's probably the beginning of the beginning. So it's, it's not even the middle or even close to the end. One thing I haven't seen talked about is the Trump era drug basket reform. You remember the favored nation mechanism that Azar put into place. I think that remains in effect. And I thought at the time and still think now that that's a good thing. But my final comment has to do with remembering and continuing to remind ourselves that any conversation about healthcare reform takes place within what I'm starting to call healthcare's gilded age, where industry plutocrats like John D. Rockefeller in his day bend the marketplace to their will through political leverage that supports their pro-business policies and weakens government enforcement to the detriment of broader society. So that's what's going on here. This is a fight by those with enormous political and market power that have used that power to pad their rent-seeking ways, and we're trying to take it away from them, and they don't like it. Yeah, I think this is going to go on for a while yet because the first drug negotiations don't happen for another three or four years. So thanks, Dave. Julie, any questions for Dave? Yeah, Dave, you know, when I saw all this go down, it was definitely the first hit we've seen against Big Pharma in a long time. So do you think this is the tip of the iceberg for Big Pharma? Or is this simply some sort of, you know, really healthy political win just before the midterms? Tip of the iceberg. Remind me to tell you my lettuce joke the next time we get together. It's too long to share here, but it's a good one. Could this be the tip of the iceberg? I suppose it could be. It depends on the extent to which the commercial market and notably self-insured employers who I just mentioned become better buyers of pharmaceuticals. Nothing prevents them from negotiating directly with drug manufacturers today, but the PBMs have their own interests and they've been winners in this legislation and they muck up. That's another technical term, normalized supply demand dynamics that determine prices in the marketplace. So to be determined, and as we just talked about, it's going to take significant time and energy to implement this legislation and a lot can go on in back rooms and hidden corners under the cloak of supposedly doing the people's business. So we have to remain vigilant here at Foresight Hill. And probably the biggest thing, and you can't blame the legislation for this, but it doesn't address my biggest concern, and that's that the FDA approval process really only evaluates harm and does not address efficacy, particularly on fast-track drugs and avoids cost-benefit analysis altogether. Until we bring cost into the equation with benefit, we're totally at risk for drugs like Aduhelm that navigate through the approval process, don't do that much good, but threaten to bankrupt the payment system. So the bottom line to your question, Julie, I think it's actually more political than true reform of the pharmaceutical market. There's still so much we don't know that it's impossible to say that with certainty. But I'm glad the legislation passed. I think it creates a new dynamic for policy discussions. We just can't assume that we've won the game and take our ball and go home. 
Yeah, thanks, Dave. And it took me a while, but I finally got the iceberg lettuce connection. <laughs> you eat too much arugula, Dave. That's the problem. Now let's talk about how the provisions in the law will affect drug market innovation in investment in healthcare startups. Julie, does this make developing a new drug less attractive, knowing that Medicare can control how much you can charge? How will this affect these new consumer-facing drug discount apps that we talk a lot about on this show? And from an investment perspective, how does this change what venture capital firms will or won't invest in? Well, it's a big, big, big question, Berta, but I'll attempt here. And this is kind of investing 101, I think. Anytime price controls are used, there are going to be consequences that ripple throughout the commercial markets because it removes a piece of the free market capitalism structure that we have. And biotech investors look at market opportunity and price caps literally change the financial opportunity for the drugs in question forecasted to be sold. And in this case, to the population segment specifically affected. And we're talking about really a handful of drugs, initially anyway, and for Medicare beneficiaries. So the bottom line is this will make developing some new drugs and some new drug classes less attractive, no doubt. And while there's some significant positioning going on by Pharma.org, and Dave just talked about the seven-figure campaign, Bio and other lobbyist organizations have followed suit. In reality, this is kind of a baby step. And the bigger concern is what we learn from this baby step that really foreshadows the future, I think. So small companies originate more than half of all new medicines. And the reality is that some of the largest grossing drugs were created by tiny biotech companies with investors who bet on crazy, crazy odds. So the question now is whether those investors will bet as much or at all, and which will you know, shut down some material portion of new drug development. Researchers from the U.S. Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy estimated that the industry would lose 10 drugs over 30 years. And then your folks in Chicago at the University of Chicago put the number of lost drugs at 135 over the next 30 years. So those are pretty different numbers. And they highlighted, for instance, cancer as a category. And I didn't know this, but cancer represents half of the total clinical research in this country. That's pretty striking. And they concluded that this legislation would greatly reduce the large amount of activity taking place in cancer as a drug class. So they tie that directly to an increase in cancer mortality. So these are pretty major positions people are taking on the effect. And the CBO has definitely followed suit. CBO, Brookings, Chicago, all of them forecast at least an 18% loss in industry revenue and hence probably an 18% decrease in innovation in this area. So I think there's a direct correlation, at least of what people are saying. So that's on the research side. On the consumer-facing app side, I don't worry too much because many of those apps are focused on more than just the senior population. Today, many apps are not used by the senior population, but as boomers age, this will change. And, you know, in the long run, this legislation may affect how the generic market behaves. And a lot of those apps have been very helpful for both transparency around branded drugs and generic drugs. And if we see fewer generics come to market, the power of those apps could change, you know, in terms of what they can really drive. But I still think we have a long way to go on transparency, so I'm not as worried about them. 
And lastly, I'll say, I do wonder about the trickle-down impact on other types of innovation. There are incredible strides being made today in drug discovery and drug development, digital tools that are being used. We have better data and analytics, a ton of operational improvement in the process just through technology use. So these types of innovations could actually see a boost from something like this because they really decrease or manage the cost of development better and can create more predictability in the process. But the jury's out. We'll see. That's fascinating, especially the part about drugs that won't get developed. I hadn't seen that data. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, I really enjoyed that discussion too, Julie. What I wonder about, since the current market is so riddled with distortion, will this adjusted market really end up in creating fewer crappy drugs? And, you know, the odds are so long, and you're right that most of the drug discovery gets outsourced anyway. I sometimes wonder if we haven't almost gone too far down that road, and wouldn't it be nice if we got more investment in how to keep people healthy and not needing the drugs in the first place? Another conversation for another day. But as I was listening to your response, I found myself thinking about Autohelm again, you know, my nightmare drug, that, you know, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug and my nightmare drug. Big Pharma seemed willing to bankrupt Medicare in support of an expensive and crappy drug with little or no proven efficacy. That's the type of innovation we need less of. Do you see anything in the new law or the market dynamics that will unfold from it that will prevent or at least discourage Big Pharma writ large from pushing the next auto helm on an unsuspecting American public? Well, Dave, I didn't read the hundreds of pages of bills, so if you did, you should definitely pipe in. But here's how I look at your question. Autohelm was created against the following figures. Now, Alzheimer's disease costs the U.S. something like $350-plus billion a year. And by 2050, it's expected to be a trillion dollars a year. So Autohelm's created against that expected payoff, weighing what's effectively a 99% failure rate. And they'll invest, or they probably invested something like $1 to $3 billion over a 10-plus year development cycle to create that drug, thinking there'd be that huge payoff. So Alzheimer's is dead center in the target of this law in the sense that Alzheimer's mostly affects seniors and is an area where there's a ton of drug activity. Even with all those odds, there's still 143 clinical trials in Alzheimer's today. So I expect something like the category of Alzheimer's to be directly affected. Would you agree with that, Dave? Will it reduce investment in Alzheimer's drugs? That's a really interesting question. You know what? The margins, you're probably right, Julie. Although the spectacular failure rate of Alzheimer's drugs to date, to me, should be reducing investment. And there have been a few big companies that have pulled out in advance of this legislation. But you're right. It, it probably means fewer resources, lower payments that will flow through Medicare to any Alzheimer's drug that comes through. So at the margins, that will affect investment. That's a great point. Very interesting. The market dynamics here are fascinating. It's like, give me a blank check or I'm not going to play at all. That is my big pharma lesson for today. I really appreciate it. Now let's briefly talk about other news this week. Julie, what other news broke this week that we should be talking about? Well, M&A is in the air as CVS this week gave the street some pretty clear guidance that that was big on their agenda. 
And now the rumors that they're potentially acquiring Signify Health. So, you know, we're in the summer doldrums in the finance markets, but I'm thinking that post Labor Day, we're going to see a lot more M&A. That, well, we'll have some scripts ready to go then. That's great. Thank you. Dave, any other news come across the wire that caught your attention? Well, this is more anecdotal than hard news. In the last couple of months, I've had four conversations with very talented health system professionals who five years ago would have been slam dunk candidates to become health system CEOs, but today want out of the game. Is this a trend or just an isolated series of individuals? If it's a trend, it could be a real game changer if the most talented health system leaders don't want to play that game anymore. I won't ask you to name names, Dave, but is it because they're running into trouble changing what you describe as a healthcare industrial complex? Is that the issue or is it just too demanding? I think the job of running a health system today is really, really hard. And I think many of these people feel they have targets on their backs and the good ones are frustrated by their inability to change the internal dynamics inside the health system, which run hard and fast toward high priced acute care service delivery and away from the types of investments we need to control chronic disease. So I think it's a combination of all of those. And I'm only now thinking of four people, but I think each of these people want to be part of the solution and no longer feel they can be part of the solution inside the health system. And if it's a trend, that's a really worrisome conclusion to come to. Yeah, definitely says a lot. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And if you follow our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming service, you'll get notified each time a new episode is available. Don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Friday Roundup. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.